0: A while ago, uh, the Organic Center partnered with Northeastern University to look at how organic farming will impact carbon sequestration in the soil, and we found that not only do organic farms uh, store more soil carbon in general, but they also store more of the type of carbon that stays in the ground for longer periods of time.
1: In this episode of Voices from the Field, Incat Agricultural and Natural Resource Economist Jeff Shizinski We'll discuss the climate benefits of certified organic production systems with Dr. Amber Saligo, Director of Science Programs at the Organic Center. With training and system based research, Dr. Saligo has worked closely with researchers, industry, farmers, and policymakers to identify organic research needs, and she has collaborated on a diverse range of research programs. The topics of some of that research include mitigating climate change, increasing feasibility of integrating livestock into produce cropping systems, increasing the accessibility of equitable agricultural technology for organic farmers, reducing tensions between national organic program standards and third-party food safety requirements, and tackling challenges associated with inadvertent pesticide contamination across the organic supply chain. Let's listen.
2: Good afternoon. I'm Jeff Shuzinski, agricultural and natural resource economist with the National Center for Appropriate Technology. And I'm very excited today to explore this topic with Amber, a longtime colleague and supporter of, of all things organic. Welcome, Amber. Amber, tell us a little bit about yourself, a quick version of the story of the work that you do at the Organic Center.
0: Hi, Jeff, Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Um, you always are so engaged in the work that we do in our webinars and ask really thought-provoking questions. And so I thank you for including me in some of your outreach efforts here. If you know me at all, you'll know that it's hard for me to give short, quick versions of things, but I'll do my best here. And start a little bit with my background. So all of my formal academic training has been in... The topics of ecology and evolution. I first started out working in natural ecosystems with a focus on plant-insect interactions and pollination ecology. And then later, my focus and training shifted to agroecosystems, agroecology and food system science. And within that, I had a little smattering of training in rural sociology. And so all of this training and we're talking like 20 years of training, (laughs) has allowed me to explore, you know, both the human and the environmental experiences from the farm to the table. I have a bit of a farming background just in my family. So I grew up in the Central Valley of California, in the Northern Central Valley, in a very rural area where my family and my community predominantly grew almonds and walnuts. Um, But rice was also a pretty major crop in that region when I was growing up there. I left my hometown after high school to go to undergraduate school at UC Santa Cruz. And then later I went to New Zealand for my graduate studies at Victoria University Wellington. And then I moved to the South Island for my PhD um, to go to Lincoln University in Canterbury. In 2010, I returned to California, couldn't stay away went to the Bay Area, and I served as a postdoc and a research associate at UC Berkeley for many years. And at my time, or during my time there at Berkeley, I studied how diversifying farms at both the farm level and the landscape level can impact ecosystem services as a whole, particularly on organic farms. So during that uh, time, I worked on nearly 50 different farms in the Central Coast region known as the Salad Bowl. And I learned so much about the benefits of organic farming practices, but also about the challenges that organic farmers face with the market, with policy and regulation compliance, um, racial discrimination in our ag system, shortages of skilled labor, and lots and lots of other challenges that organic farmers face. So a lot of my personal career research experience is also the focus of the research themes at the organic Center because I was studying, you know, challenges to organic farming and we also try to advance research that um, helps overcome challenges to organic farming. But I'll say briefly, the way that TOC works is that we have two main threads of work that we do. One thread is to facilitate research, that fills knowledge gaps for the organic supply chain. And the other one is to communicate the results from those research projects and also other peer reviewed science that's related to organic and other forms of sustainable agriculture to the general public with our main audience being the consumer. So we try to provide science backed information that will help consumers better understand the difference that organic production makes so that when they can make a choice, they will make an informed choice when they purchase food or if they vote for people and policies that impact agricultural production. And I guess I'll last mention that our outreach strategies that we use at the organic center really aim to build communities and to support organic industry advancement as a whole um, by bringing together stakeholders across the supply chain not just to identify um, the knowledge gaps, but to also collaboratively develop tools and solutions to tackle those challenges.
2: Oh, thank you, Amber. As you know, there has been an increasing national discussion about what the USDA has dubbed climate-smart agriculture and climate-smart commodities. Are organic production systems climate-smart?
0: Well, the short answer is yes. But I'm guessing that you'd like for me to expand a bit on that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Please, please, please. Yeah,
0: (laughs) so I'll give you a little bit of a longer answer and say that organic farming practices benefit the agroecosystem as a whole. And this includes human health and the health of the environment at multiple scales. And climate change mitigation is probably, I'd say, the largest scale impact that organic farming practices can have. So we know that organic practices increase biodiversity both above and below ground, and this helps build soil health. Um, Healthy soils store more carbon and they also reduce nutrient leaching or runoff that that can end up as greenhouse gas emissions. And when the whole system is robust and it's functioning well, it becomes productive, it becomes sustainable, And it is regenerative, which is a really big word that we're using these days, especially in the context of thinking about climate smart. I would say that a lot of what organic is results in climate smart farming, but what organic isn't is also important. And it makes this type of farming climate smart. So for instance, the prohibition of the use of synthetic fertilizer um, and toxic chemical pesticides not only improves biodiversity and the overall health of the farm ecosystem, but it also reduces the amount of energy that's used and the greenhouse gas emissions that are produced just by the manufacturing, shipping, and application of these chemicals.
2: Thanks. Thanks. That's a great answer. Uh, when we examine the latest EPA inventory of sources of greenhouse gas emissions from the agriculture production tech, it represents about 10% of the total U.S. emissions, and most of those emissions come from soil nutrient management related primarily to the use of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. Since certified organic production systems cannot use synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, is it likely that organic production systems can reduce the source of greenhouse gas emissions? What does the current research tell us?
0: Well, first of all, I'm glad that we are talking about this particular topic because most of the climate change media coverage that we see today tends to focus on carbon emissions. And we know that nitrous oxide emissions are often overlooked. Well, it's apparent to me anyway. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's why I'm happy we're talking about this. But nitrous oxide is also a greenhouse gas, and it's very potent. It has over 300 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide, yet we don't talk a lot about it. Um, Agriculture is the largest source of nitrous oxide, and it contributes to over two-thirds of the global nitrous oxide emissions. Synthetic fertilizer application on conventional crops, particularly those really large-scale monoculture crops that we see in um, often corn and soybean um, production systems. That fertilizer application is one of the leading sources of nitrous oxide emissions in agriculture, largely because um, excess application of that fertilizer can lead to increased nitrification and denitrification, which creates nitrous oxide as a byproduct while also leading to nitrate leaching into groundwater. But beyond the post-application emissions, which make a lot of sense, you can visualize that very easily, um, is the pre-production or the production process and the enormous amount of energy that is used in that process and the carbon dioxide emissions that are produced just from making the synthetic fertilizer The Haber-Bosch process is a chemical reaction that requires really high pressure and really high temperatures, around 500 degrees Celsius. That's hot, Um, and that requires a lot of energy to achieve. Some have estimated that the production of synthetic fertilizer uses about 1% of the world's total energy. And the production of synthetic fertilizer has also been estimated to generate 1% of the global annual carbon dioxide emissions, which is more than any other industrial chemical making reaction. Uh, The hydrogen that is required for that Haber-Bosch chemical reaction comes from natural gas or coal or oil through processes that will release carbon dioxide. And these emissions From hydrogen production alone account for more than half of those from the entire ammonia production process. So, all of that to say (laughs) that making synthetic fertilizer requires a ton of energy. It releases a huge amount of carbon dioxide in the process. And the application of this fertilizer often results in the release of nitrous oxide, which is, as I said before, more potent than carbon dioxide. And, you know, all of this can be avoided with organic because, as you mentioned, synthetic fertilizer is prohibited um, in the use of certified organic production.
2: Yeah, and and I've heard recently, you know, there's been a rapid increase in the price of synthetic fertilizer. So, in a way, is this maybe leading to more people considering organic farming just because you don't have to use it and if you can learn how to not use it, then it might be i beneficial to tr- something to try out.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, without completely demonizing synthetic fertilizer, <laughs> um, it has been a really important tool and it offers, you know, short term, very readily available nutrients to crops. And historically, it has been very affordable, particularly compared to organic compost or other organic soil amendments. And when we're talking about the logistics, feasibly, it can be easier to, to obtain and also to apply um, in comparison to, say, a bunch of compost. And that is applicable to farms across all scales. But that feasibility difference will depend you know, on what your cropping system is and where your farm is located. But I think now, since there has been more of this price squeeze on the on the cost of synthetic fertilizer and it's gone up so much, it has given folks an opportunity to, I guess, consider organic soil amendments as an option and just give it a try and see if it works for them feasibly, if it works for their business model. But I think, yeah, with that price differentiation being smaller, it does offer folks a chance to consider alternative um, types of fertilizer.
2: Thank you. Next question. There is a, a lot of hope that improved soil health will lead to higher levels of soil organic matter and thereby provide some level of offset of the greenhouse emissions through soil carbon sequestration. In your estimation, can organic production systems guaranteed improve soil carbon sequestration? What are the likely benefits and challenges?
0: Well, it does make me a little bit. Let's say itchy. As a scientist, to say that something guarantees anything, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but good
2: point. <laughs> I, good point. I,
0: but I actually do think in this case um, we can't we can't say that. So, you know, when organic farmers are certified, they are mandated to use practices that build healthy soils, and in the process, these soils will offer climate change mitigation benefits that include carbon sequestration. And there is a lot of research that shows how organic practices like cover cropping and using organic soil amendments will improve that carbon storage in soils. A few years ago, or maybe more than a few, I've sort of lost track of time (laughs) with this COVID (laughs) pandemic, but a while ago, uh, the Organic Center partnered with Northeastern University to look at how organic farming will impact carbon sequestration in the soil And we found that not only do organic farms uh, store more soil carbon in general, but they also store more of the type of carbon that stays in the ground for longer periods of time. So we analyzed over a thousand soil samples from organic and conventional farms from across 48 uh, U.S. states. And from that analysis, we found that organic soils had 13% higher soil organic matter overall and 44% higher long-term carbon storage than conventionally um, wow. managed soils, which is quite a lot.
2: That's significant. Yeah.
0: Then we followed up on that work a few years later, and we partnered with the University of Maryland, who then took a look at best practices within organic farming systems. And found that organic farmers can boost their soil organic carbon by an average of 18% and increase microbial biomass carbon by an average of 30% when they use organic soil amendments, conservation tillage, and cover crops. And um, while all three of those farming practices did show uh, that they boosted carbon sequestration, The study found that using best practices for organic soil amendments, um, in particular, compost and manure, had the biggest impact um, in the shortest period of time.
2: Interesting. Yeah. You also, um, I know there's a new livestock rule, and we were were talking about this, and you suggested that that might also play into carbon sequestration, soil carbon sequestration.
0: Well, I you know, one of the things, again, that often gets overlooked in this conversation is for organic in particular is how the livestock rules will make a difference for um, climate change. So, you know, livestock farming in general is kind of in the hot seat, I guess you could say for the conversation related to climate change and um, greenhouse gas emissions, particularly with methane. But there are some rules that help uh, set organic apart in that conversation and the main thing is that most of our dairy and livestock production that we find mainstream retail outlets comes from animals that have been confined in situations that are soilless basically that means the animals are raised or finished basically on cement. And then that manure is washed away into lagoons where an enormous amount of methane is produced and lost. And there are people who are implementing really innovative strategies to capture that methane and use it for energy, but this isn't happening in all of those confined operations. In contrast, the National Organic Program requires ruminant livestock, um, really obvious example is cows, to spend more time in the pasture than conventional animals on high-density feedlots. And when those animals aren't on pasture, they're required to eat a 100% organically produced diet. So what this means is that when the animals spend more time on pasture, it's helping to mitigate climate change because pasturing helps store carbon in the soil by definition, soil is involved. (laughs) So carbon storage can happen. (laughs) But also growing feed without the use of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, just as a start, as we just discussed, is also key in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and energy use. So there's like this two layer part to that system. There's the livestock operation, growing the animals themselves and how soil makes a difference, but then also growing the crops to provide the feed for the animals and the benefit that that provides as well when it's done organically.
1: NCAT's Growing Hope Conference is sponsored in part by Rural South Institute, a nonprofit organization honored to be part of the efforts by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to assist military veterans reintegrating into civilian society as they retire or return from active duty abroad. Through grant funding from USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture, RSI offers mentoring services, training, education, outreach, and technical assistance to veterans and their families in Alabama. RSI was conceived in 2018 and born out of the need and desire to assist underprivileged youth and economically depressed communities. The Institute is dedicated to protecting the environment, guiding and educating youth, and cultivating the next generation of minority farmers and rural entrepreneurs. For more information, visit the Rural South Institute's website at RuralSouthInstitute.com.
2: Thanks. That's that's really interesting with the the livestock especially. What research uh, is in process that can better inform inform us of the climate benefits of organic agricultural production systems?
0: Well, I hope that you're not asking me to summarize all
2: of it. <laughs> yeah, is, give us some of the highlights. A
0: <laughs> There's a lot, and I'll say maybe, maybe what's long. hot and
2: what's hot and new, or, or the yeah. kind of, it seems to be really grazing to the to the top.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it is exciting, right? That there is more of a public awareness of an interest in this kind of research, and therefore, governments are also increasing their investment in research along this thread. And there are certain parts of the country, particularly in states like California, where the state departments of agriculture are really investing in exploring the outcomes of various farming practices on soil health and climate change mitigation. So there is a lot of work that's being done, and I am not going to pretend to know all of it. (laughs) But um, there are some specific projects that i can mention and the first that i wanted to highlight was the 40-year farming systems trial that uh the rodale institute has been running this is probably the longest term organic study that i know of uh, where results are consistently yeah. being published and updated they have a new report that they just put out with an with a results update and It's showing how different organic systems compare to conventional for a variety of ecosystem health metrics, including carbon sequestration. So if you're interested in that study, you can very easily just Google the Rodale Institute and you're going to find that report. They also have a webinar that summarizes the the results too, which is interesting.
2: Yeah, we'll make sure Uh, folks get those links later too on on this as well. Perfect,
0: perfect. And I'm also going to put a plug in again to our own work (laughs) Um, also because I know, you know, I know more about that because it's, it's closer to home, but we have a funding program at the organic center where we partnered with FAR um, or the foundation of food and agriculture research. And we, through this program, we're able to fund organic outreach and some research programs. Last year, we funded two projects that were focused on organic techniques for improving mitigation and resiliency to climate change and we put a priority on systems-based approaches and also a commitment to cross-sector partnerships so we awarded two grants one of which was for two hundred thousand dollars to the university of tennessee institute of agriculture and dr sindhu jagadama is investigating how Growing trees on organic farms and transforming organic waste from those farms into high-value compost can naturally and cost-effectively mitigate climate change, as well as help reduce the carbon footprint of organic farms. So we'll be seeing some results coming out of that in a couple of years. Um, We also awarded $77,000 to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where Dr. Aaron Silva is looking at how to improve existing carbon and nutrient modeling tools and to help create new ones that better reflect organic farming practices because organic has, the data from organic farms has been lacking in some of these modeling tools. So she's planning to share her results with ag professionals and policymakers to help inform where uh, we need more future research to go in order to understand uh, the impacts of organic farming on climate and environmental stewardship. I'll say next, we will be running this program again next year in 2023. And we this year
2: you um, mean right? We're already in this it this <laughs> year.
0: This year we're in 2023. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! We we're already in the second month. My goodness! Oh
2: my goodness! <laughs>
0: I know. Um. So yes, we're running in again 2023 this year. We have not yet um put out the call for proposals. I expect that to happen in the spring. But if you are subscribed to our newsletter, then you will uh, be made aware when we put out a call for applications for outstanding outreach in the organic sector. And also um, this year, our research topic will be more related to soil health. That is a very vague description, but the call for proposals will be a lot more detailed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and just for reference, our, our prize prize. Award amounts range from um, twenty-five to one hundred thousand for outreach, and from one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand yeah. for research.
2: Projects. Sign- so. Significant funding. I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. it is
0: significant. But even more significant are the huge grants that the USDA just put out <laughs> this <laughs> year to fund pilot programs for partnerships in climate smart commodities, which is what you were asking about earlier. Yeah. Those climate smart commodities. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I'll just say that I know that a strong handful of grant recipients are planning to work on organic farms, and they will incorporate soil health and carbon storage verification measurements into their program. So I expect that over the next five years, we'll be gathering more much-needed data at a national scale to show outcomes of organic practices and hopefully Within that five-year time period, people will start to publish that so it can be used, um, particularly for those those models that I mentioned um, earlier too.
2: Cool. I know we've kind of kind of covered some of this already, but maybe just some um, more recent updates. What's what's next for the Organic Center in the realm of climate change work for the Organic Center?
0: Yeah. Well, we always have a lot of projects that are ongoing. Beyond those that we're funding, we're collaborating on a lot of research, but um, I guess I'll just mention that most immediately what's coming up is our Organic Confluences Conference that we will be hosting in May this year, this year, 2023, (laughs) in conjunction uh, with the Organic Trade Association's Organic Week. Our conference this year will focus on reducing plastic along the organic supply chain. Um, um, which obviously has very major climate change implications, as well as other pollution <laughs> implications. <laughs> yeah, and so in general, our conferences that we try to hold annually, pending funding, they intentionally bring together a wide range of stakeholders. That's the the confluences part of our conference. Uh, yeah. You know, we really try to bring together farmers, researchers. Industry leaders and policymakers, when we can, it helps when we host the conference in DC for that aspect. But we really want to have everybody come together to discuss and develop solutions for a certain challenge in organic. And plastic is kind of, you know, this Achilles heel for the organic industry throughout the supply chain, Um, but especially on the farm, because plastic can often provide a valuable tool for farmers that already have a limited toolbox when trying to tackle pests and diseases. So this conference will discuss where plastic plays a role in this the organic supply chain, how it moves through the supply chain, and in that process, how it can enter the environment and also our bodies and some of the consequences of that. We will talk about the important ways that plastic is relied upon across the supply chain and think about some policies that would need changing to support not relying on it so much and and having um, alternatives. And then we will also discuss some of those alternatives and showcase some of the really innovative ways that people are substituting plastic or reducing the use or increasing recycling or reuse of that plastic. And ultimately, what we hope to do is create some policy recommendations that will support the reduction of plastic use across the food system um, with the organic industry leading the way.
2: Yeah, I can relate to that. I was an organic farmer once in my life many years ago, and and it was vegetable production in New Jersey. And having to pull all that plastic off every year. And I know it was it was for weed control. I mean, it really was functionally useful and helpful, but feeling really bad and labor intensive by my dad and removing yeah, yeah. and putting it back out every year. So so uh, yeah, I know this is it's uh, it is a challenge and it's gonna be interesting. And it's it's great you guys are taking that on. Any last thoughts you'd like to share in general about what What's going on in organic these days? <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I guess I guess I would say that I am grateful that we're having this conversation about climate change and how organic is climate smart, how organic practices fit into the climate solution. I think it's a really important issue. It's a good talking point because people are listening and they're listening because they really care. I, You know, this the newer generations, I'm starting to feel older. Um, (laughs) The the younger generations really do care about their future and climate change obviously is a huge piece of that. However, I, I guess I would remind folks that organic as a system has a lot of other benefits that we used to talk more about. And so far, I think it's sort of stepped off the stage because we've been talking so much about climate. So I think, you know, unfortunately, in general, the public still largely misunderstands what organic means, even that there is a minimum set of rules that must be followed when organic operations are certified. This is probably a result of many things, but partly because, you know, the industry could be better aligned on messaging and, this is also a result of information overload in a time where we are so flooded with information and misinformation. You know, there are so many different sustainability labels and claims and buzzwords that are being thrown around out there. And to even know what the definitions of those buzzwords are or to try to dive deeply into any of those claims for a consumer is just, it's too much. It's just too much work. I can't keep up with everything, (laughs) you know, and can't even come close to keeping up with everything. And I put in a really big effort. (laughs) So, you know, I think consumers at this point, maybe know a bit more about what organic is not than what it is. So we've talked a lot about organic not being GMO and not using toxic chemicals, pesticides, fertilizers. But it seems that the public knows less about or we're still talking less about the beneficial outcomes of what organic farming can provide like how not using these harsh chemicals can improve these ecosystem functions It improves biodiversity and soil health and it reduces runoff of chemicals, um, reduces excess nutrients in our water sources. And let's not forget that it also reduces chemical exposure to farmers and farm workers in entire rural communities. So yeah, I think the organic industry needs to be more clear and succinct. Like I could work on being succinct.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we all could uh, to, to work on that.
0: <laughs> to help uh, you know, to help explain just the basics of organic for those who really want to know the difference that organic makes. And I think. Right now, this is especially important because people are being faced with higher prices at the stores, at retail outlets, and at restaurants. And some people are having to make some pretty tough choices about how to spend their limited dollars. And we know that organic is more expensive because it needs to be. So, yeah, that's why it's one of our main goals and missions at the Organic Center, because we want to empower the consumer with credible information about what organic means. And then finally, you know, if consumers are willing to choose organic, then maybe they will feel empowered to vote for people and policies that will increase access to organic and or increase the supply of organic to meet our growing demand. And I wanted to put a plug out there as a reminder that this is a farm bill year which oh, is, yes it is. <laughs> um, It's a huge thing to understand. And it's a, it can feel daunting to get involved. But I do encourage anybody who's listening, if you're not involved already actively, to try to get involved this year. And there are lots of resources out there, like Community Farm Alliance, they have a lot of great resources to help people get involved and sort of coach you through that process. But yeah, I think I'm just going to stop there, Jeff.
2: Well, I think <laughs> that was that was that was stupendous. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time, and and we'll be checking in for sure with the Organic Center. And as I said, uh, we will have uh, links and information posted to this podcast, and of course. The Organic Center is easy to, to Google, as we say. Google, yes. Mr. Ask Mr. Google. And, uh, and ATRA and the NCAT program also have great web, uh, websites where all of this information and uh, a copy of this recording can be found. So anyway, thank
1: you, Amber. And uh, have a great day. And we'll, we'll be in touch. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.